Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello, my name is John Bleasdale. I'm a writer and critic, and today I'm talking to Jay Glenny. Jay is the author and publisher of a series of beautiful large format books documenting the making of some classic films. The Deer Hunter, Performance, Raging Bull, and Trainspotting have all had the treatment, which includes exclusive interviews with the stars and filmmakers and beautiful, often unseen before, photographs. If you like the episode, please remember to like, share, and spread the word. You can also also follow me on Twitter at Dr. Jonty, E-R-J-O-N-T-Y. But before you do any of that, please enjoy the conversation. Yes, yeah, we came out and we had a fantastic response. Um, they're big, large format editions. It's something that my buddy and I, um, we set up coattails, purely because I took the deer hunter idea to a few publishers and they diluted it so much I believe i definitely i'd spoken to marion rosenberg who's the executive producer on deer hunter and she'd given me this huge cachet of post-production material and bob and i had met at that stage and he'd offered to open up his archives but i don't think i'd gone so i knew there was this wealth of material and i didn't want it diluted and i i think we're so used to seeing things on the on the internet now and on the on, the, on our ipads and, and such like the tablets we can blow up these images and i've always found it a little bit frustrating when we've got you got these small books and you can't see the images very well so i w- really wanted the books to be big large format editions and that's what gave birth to this little publishing company we set it up and um we're on our 
third book released now. Um, Train Spotting comes in the summer, and then by winter we'll have Taxi Driver as well. How long have you been doing it for? When did you when did you set up? Yeah, about two years ago. And your first book was The Deer Hunter then? No, my first book would have been The Deer Hunter, but performance came out before that. I sort of paused The Deer Hunter and because um, Mick Jagger was free. So I ended up interviewing Mick Jagger for performance. And yeah, and that came out. And then we got Deer Hunter out. And then when I presented Bob with The Deer Hunter, he came over to London Christmas 19 and he asked what was next. And I said, yeah, I'd love to explore Raging Ball. Um, lockdown happened. I rang him, I emailed, texted him and said, look, Bob, I'm going to start now. And he gave me the green light. And um, so that was my sort of lockdown baby whilst writing Trainspotting as well. Having read Performance and The Raging Bull, it's amazing the amount of people that you've been able to to talk to. Yeah, John, I stupidly, anybody setting out on a first-hand or count, I think we we need our senses looked at. Yeah? Because you, in no way would you assume that you could get hold of these people. But I'm not a big I didn't really want to see myself in the book. So that was the first port of call. I really wanted to make sure that the, the people, the participants, main participants were there. But what's really exciting as well is to get to find people that not many people have interviewed. In the Gloria Norris book, there's, I mean, in the Rage and Ball book, I found a lady called Gloria Norris and she transcribed the screenplay that Bob and Martin made their own in St. Martin. And she referred to some images she'd taken. And I asked her, you know, if you haven't got your iPhone there, you can just see them. And she sent them through. And those are the images of the, of the guys on the beach in the Hawaiian shirt with the pina coladas. And I'd never seen those images before, so they had to be in the book. And then Bob referred to his training video. So I managed to get some screenshots of his training video. And these things, you know, when you find these things, they're just, they're heaven. Um, so they're, those alongside the, the participants, yeah, I think, I just think it's key for those guys to come on board. But, you know, you are, you've set yourself up for a fall to believe that they are they are going to come on board. But when they do, it's a, it's a dream. With Raging Ball, we had a, I had an email from Bob on the Monday morning. Um, Jay, are you free now? I need to talk to your ASAP. And no matter how close you feel you are with somebody or relationship you built up, that, that those kind of emails are always a little bit, oh my word, <laughs> this doesn't sound good. He called and he'd spoken to Joe the night before and I'd had three maybe four no's from Joe's people. He doesn't do interviews. Um, and I didn't push, but I just periodically I'd send them an update, just a little nudge see, so they could see how the project was growing. And the same answer came back. And then Bob obviously spoke to him and said, look, this guy's quite trustworthy. Come on board. And he said, yes. And it was a great interview. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I mean, the first couple of, I don't think I'm speaking out of turn now, but the first couple of questions were batted back with a straight bat, almost yes, no, which is obviously not going to translate in a book. Right. Instantly, I was thinking on my feet and um, I gave him the question and the answer to the next couple of questions. Yeah, that's right. That did happen. Yeah, you're right. And before we knew it, we were almost like you and I now were conversational, just chatting away. And it was it was marvellous. His PA ended up bringing me back and saying how much he enjoyed it. I mean, to get Pesci on board was just key. And I mean, as you say, you read the book and his little insights, I think, are, are, are wonderful. Well, exactly, because he's such... I mean, Raging Bull, you've obviously got Martin Scorsese, who's one of the the better... I mean, he's one of those directors who's really available to lots of different people, so you so you can mm. sort of hear his thoughts. I mean, and he writes himself, mm. but someone like Joe Pesci, that's a real... You know, that you hit you hit gold there. Yes, yes. I mean, through no... No, nothing from my side of things. It's all wonderful Robert De Niro opening up that door. 
Mm. There's a quite wonderful quote for Joe in the book. He, he says, uh, Adrian Ball gave me my life. And yeah, and it, uh, he's under no doubts that it did. And he certainly gave him his career. I don't know about a life. Both Pesci and De Niro have reputations as being quite recalcitrant and difficult to, to interview as well. But you obviously had established a relationship first with Bob De Niro and, and then mm. afterwards with Joe. How, how did you first meet and get involved in that way? It's simply by writing away. I, I sent an email over to his representatives. It was just laying out who I'd spoken to on The Deer Hunter, what my intentions were, how the book was going to be a celebration. I only wanted to know about the film and the make and its making of. And that I still remember the email coming back in, John, and I actually spoke to the screen. Really? He's going to do it. And it was, yeah, his team are going to set you up on a call. We'll give you some dates. Enjoy. And they did. And we did. It was, it was remarkable. I think I don't, you know, I've never put makeup on Bob. I've never put a microphone on Bob. I've never put a camera on Bob. I've never put a light on Bob. It's just literally we're just sitting there chatting. I then right. transcribe. I then send it back to him. He then comes back with some thoughts and expands. He's never once censored me. I don't recall. He, he has... That's a lie, actually. He has on a couple of occasions because I've made him sound apparently like an English guy. Right. <laughs> I've said something that that was fantastic or that was wonderful. And he said, Jay, I've never said that. <laughs> I think you, you, you're you making me sound like you now. And so, yeah, we've, he's got a little bit of that Essex-isms in him initially when we've, <laughs> we've managed to take those out. Yeah, he's been he's just been he's been nothing but friendly. I mean, I remember the when Barry Normie, Norman interviewed him and I think famously sort of walked out and I've, I've had none of that, Bob. We've got on really well and he's somebody I consider a friend now, which is... If you'd have told me a couple of years ago, I would have been amazed. If you'd have told the boy who Jay, my word, I mean, John, my, I made my mum buy me silk underpants for school because uh, I heard that he'd, he'd worn them in New York, New York. When you can't go to an Essex <laughs> comprehensive school and you're getting changed for sports and down your, your shorts to reveal you've got silk underpants on you need pretty broad shoulders that's amazing but was he like then your sort of first point of contact when it came to deciding i want to do a film about the i wanted sorry i want to do a book about the deer hunter i want to do is is he your entry into those movies yeah more so than the directors i i i went yeah it was instantly bob i don't know what it was what was my first bob film Bob de niro film do you know what i think it was that new wave of british actors that came out when i was younger so you got tim Roth, gary oldman and they were referencing him and almost simultaneously we had the Mickey Rourke's and the Sean Penn's in America and they were referencing Robert De Niro and that's how I would have got into Robert De Niro and then I moved backwards with Marlon Brando Montgomery Clifton James Dean much to my wife's disdain now because we we often have an 80s movie night because I've missed all those 80s films because I was pompous twit and didn't watch them because they weren't didn't have De Niro or Penn or D- Dean or Clifton and so I, the Back to the Futures I've only just recently seen all, all these wonderful films that I thoroughly enjoyed sitting down watching them but I never got to watch them at the time because yeah I was so you know I, I was sort of filling my tanks up with all these wonderful acts. What got you into into the idea of, of writing of film books, uh, and, and particularly this kind of making of book, which which I personally, I, I absolutely love this kind of book. This is sort of like, there was a TV show, I can't remember what it's called now, but I think it might have been on the ITV, where they showed you behind the scenes of For Your Eyes Only and stuff like mm. that. And I mm. used to eat that stuff up as a kid. Mm. It was called Clapperboard or something like that. Okay. But I really love this. I'm, I'm the guy who re- watches all the DVD extras and all that sort of stuff. What yeah. what drew you to this format? Very, very similar story, John. There's young guys, if we went to the pub to watch the football, I don't up to the screen at half time and listen to the, the half time commentaries. And um, so as I reevaluated the first half, my mates would be at the bar 
And I'd be listening to this because I was so interested in the process. I was always interested in, in what went behind the scenes. And that was the same thing with movies. I've always been. Hence, at the top of our conversation, I showed you how many film books I've got. It's always that process of how and why is almost as interesting to me as the film itself. I've always, always been interested. I got into writing TV formats and um, I came up with an idea to look at British Oscar winners. And we'd only just had our first daughter and anybody who's, who's got children would know you never wake up mum when we've got a young baby in the house to tell her you've got a great idea for a TV format. Top tip, don't do it. <laughs> but I'd had a couple of Jack Daniels, it was very late. And uh, I thought, God, that's a good, good idea. I could look at British Oscar winners. I wonder how many British Oscar winners got. This would be a good idea. And I started writing lists, cut a long story short, I started interviewing loads of British Oscar winners. Nobody asked me where the interviews were going. I didn't know where they were going. I didn't know they were going to a book, a TV show, whatever they were for. But no, no, no one's agents asked. Michael Caine had taught me to cook vine roast potato, interviewed the liver de Havilland. All these wonderful people, not one person asked me where was, what was going with them. The three guys that won the Oscar for The Deer Hunter were three British producers. And their stories were sort of quite sort of full of rancor and bitterness and falling out. And instantly my antennae went up. I thought, mm-hmm. well, this is a bigger story than just their interviews. So I started writing away to Deer Hunter participants. And then a friend of mine, Steve Kirkham, had the rights to some images for The Man That Fell to Earth. I said, well, I know the producers of The Man That Fell to Earth, Michael Dealey, Barry Spikins. And John Pebble. Well, how do you know them? And I told him the story. I said, well, I could interview them for the book if you want. And then it expanded in. I brought a, a, a school friend of mine in, Dell, and we sort of co-wrote this book together on the man that fell to earth. So instantly, when that finished, I thought, well, you know, I could do this similar kind of thing. And we've been interviewed by Jonathan Roth or the man that fell to earth. And when he came out into the green room, he shook hands with everybody and he said to me, you, riding on the coattails of David Bowie, I'll talk to you later. And I remember thinking, coattails, coattails publications, that's a great idea. Because all my books are going to be riding on the co- Hotels of somebody. Um, that's what I call the the, the company. That's literally as, as simple and easy and as naive as it, as it was. I thought I'd set up a little company, sell them on on the internet, make them limited edition to create that call to arms to get them quite quick. And a couple of years later, I still haven't had my bathroom decorated, much to my wife's disdain, because I'm piling money into creating books. <laughs> Build it and they will come philosophy. Yeah, I'm a, I had an older brother. I shared a bedroom with my late older brother, Bob, and he so, so punk was sort of just finishing and the new wave was starting. So it's that sort of punk mentality, really, that I grew up with. We had loads of, loads of our school friends were in bands and have since made great careers. And you thought, well, why not? Why can't I give it a go? You know, let, let me give it a go. And uh, if you don't ask, they, <laughs> you'll never know. So and it's that philosophy, really. I've, obviously, I then, for the man that fell to Earth book, I'd interviewed Nick Rowe. Whilst I was there, I took along some questions, John, and I'm very 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 rarely have questions when i'm interviewing people i've done enough research i know exactly what where i want to go but i'd love to see the conversation grow as an old friend of mine was a, was a journalist and he told me to have your questions by all means have your questions but your second question ignore your second question until you know you're finished with the first one because that first answer could take you on another journey too often people are already asking the second question before the first question's been answered and you never know where that first question is going to be answered and what journey you're going to take i broke that little rule i took a of questions along for Nick Rowe and on the first question I asked him it was probably a half hour he hadn't answered the question we were on a completely different tangent I remember picking the questions up and putting them in my bag think I'm never going to get these up and his wife came up with a tray of drinks and she said Nick are you behaving yourself Jay is he behaving himself and I sort of looked at her and she could see that I wasn't really getting and she sort of made him answer the questions because he's the first thing he said to me actually was I'm going to apologize for my grasshopper mind and Nick Rowe you know like his film non-linear but I've got a grasshopper mind. And I had read that he didn't like talking about performance, but my naivety, not knowing what the rules were, I thought, well, you know, I'm going to ask him. And sure enough, we did. And um, and when I gave 
I tell you what happened, John. I asked him what it was like to release a film and not have that instant recognition. And I didn't think he'd heard me. And he, he was obviously of an age and I was going to commit the cardinal sin of re-asking the question again. Mm. And he had heard me and he said so quietly, it's lonely, it's incredibly lonely. And my heart dropped. This was Nick Rowe telling me how horrible it was to release a film and not get the acclaim that you, you'd hoped you were going to get. And I remember walking out and I thought, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to find out what filmmakers love him and I'm going to ask them, would they contribute to the man that fell to earth book? So I did. I found out that, you know, the likes of Terry Gilliam loved him. Sam Taylor Johnson loved him. And, and I wrote away to them, Kevin McDonald. And one of them was a producer, Sandy Lieberson. And he spoke about Nick, working with Nick on performance, what Nick was a lovely guy. And when I presented them with their books as a thank you for the man fell to earth, Sandy and I started talking about performance. Would, right. could we replicate? Could we do something similar? And he had this treasure trove of imagery. So I went down to see it and it was, to, and I used to get it all, all digitalized, but it was well worth it. It was some tremendous artifacts in there. And I said, I'd love to do it, but I want to continue the sort of same journey. You're on board. I can go back to Nick. I want to see if Mick Jagger and James Fox have come on board. I wrote away and they both said yes. And um, which was, yeah, which was remarkable. Was, I think maybe they said yes because the film was held back for two years. So consequently, there wasn't a lot of press around the film as there was nowadays. And they'd never really had an opportunity to explain themselves and perhaps drill down into a few details. Nick never liked talking about it because he and Donald had fallen out. Um, the press sort of gave him credit for it in Donald's eye. Sorry, I'd given Nick Rowe credit for performance. And that created a bit bit of rancor between the two of them so Nick never liked talking about them as I said I didn't really understand that and so I just plowed ahead and asked him as many questions as I could get now, I mean it, a bit of fortunate naivety goes a long way yeah I think sometimes if, I think if you know too many rules you, you're bound by those rules and you, that creates hesitancy and I, I don't really like that I just why can't I why can't I I'm going to give it a go I'm going to have a go and I've done that in a lot of different things I couldn't write a TV format but I came up with a few ideas and I wrote some TV formats and we sold them and the TV shows got made and well okay yeah, I went along to some meetings where I wanted to walk out because there's so many university graduates telling me that the shows were rubbish and none of them had shows off the ground I had and it's the same with the books well, these books have been my lifeblood as I've been growing up um, why couldn't I see if I could write some books I mean I think Nick Rogue's one of my favourite directors mm. I just find him and earlier you mentioned the sort of punk spirit and performance is really on the sort of knife edge between punk and the 60s yeah. you know it's it's like with Chaz the James Fox gangster character you've got this real punkish aggression and everything and and then you have Turner the Mick Jagger character representing the 60s in in its glorious excess and and decadence what what appealed to you about the the film what was it do, do you remember like the first time you saw it yeah i do i i went along to see the hit and i thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed it it blew me away the hit so i went away to read as much as i could about the hit and different interviews and i kept seeing performance being referenced as an influence on on the film and then I found a cinema in London. I can't remember which one, but it was, I remember it was pretty sleazy. <laughs> and I, I, I shot along to watch it. And it, it, it as, a, as I hoped it would, it just blew me away. It was like two films gelled together. I mean, the first half, you could see so many influences in that first half. And now going forward, you because you still can. When James Fox, when he, he smells the lawyer, you never smell anybody like that. And he said he wanted to get into the skin of what, what playing a, a chap would be. And you could smell that coming out. And then obviously the the, the, the soundtrack, I remember walking along the, the high street afterwards, that heard nothing like the soundtrack. And this is what, 20 years later, 15, 20 years later. It just, it just, that's what I wanted to try and achieve with the performance book to that energy and that 
what that brought to me is hopefully try and bring that across in, in the book to, to, to hear James talking about it and, and to find somebody like Billy Murray who'd, who'd started out in his, his career working on the film. And to hear all these great stories about the likes of Bindon. I mean, these guys were real hoods. There's a, a great story in, in, in the book that Billy Murray told me he didn't want to go out one night. And um, Bindon was saying, no, you've got to come out. You've got to come out. And he went out for one drink because he, no, he wanted to take his career seriously. The craze had put him through drama school. We felt he owed it to the craze to, to make a career, a life in movie. Whereas Bindon was sort of this wild card. So he went out. The following day, they were on set and Bindon's come piling up to him with a matchbox, shaking the matchbox. And he said, yeah, Billy, well, yeah, you want to know what's in this? And he said, I don't really, John, I don't really. He said, yeah, you should do, yes, you do, you want to know what's in this. And he said, well, what's in it? He said, well, ask Jimbo, which is James Fox. And said, well, what's in the matchbox then, James? He said, and Bindon had got into a fight and bitten off someone's finger and put it in the matchbox. <laughs> and that was the night, <laughs> that was that night. And where somebody like James Fox, who's this lovely, you know, privately educated young guy, who'd had all this lovely hilly hair, and he transformed himself into a chap. And, I asked James as well, because the rumour was that he'd been out on a couple of, of gigs with the guys in the evenings and he, he didn't allude to that too much. But apparently he did. He went out to a few of the chaps' excursions in the evenings just to get a flavour of it. And boy, that menace didn't exude it. It's just, mm. it's, I found that just remarkable. And then when Sandy told me that the first choice for it was Marlon Brando and they'd had meetings with Marlon in his hotel suite and he was going to pay an American gangster on the land. And that, that sort of got pushed aside. That made it even more interesting. Here, there's a different story. Imagine how the film could have been made with Marlon Brando. It's just bizarre. Yeah, and Tuesday Weld as well. You uh, you, you bring up yes. that she broke an ankle of, of why she was going to play the neat character. It's just one of these fortuitous things, isn't it? Because now you just see that trio and it is Anita, Mick and James. And you couldn't imagine anybody else playing those roles. It's like Tom Selleck as, as Indiana Jones. Yes. And we in with this, um, Nick told me that, that they've gone into the film with a silly idea that Donald was going to look after the actors and Nick was going to take care of all the aesthetics and the, the cinematography. That would be in his background. And instantly those fields were melded into one and all became one. They they realised that wasn't going, going to work. But I mean, just two directors on a film, you just can't, I mean, what have we, what have we had? Um, guys and Dolls. Not guys and dolls. West Side Story, that's famously had two, but they fell out. It's just, uh, it, I don't think they work. You need an alter at the front, don't you? And Donald didn't have a great career thereafter, whereas Nick did. And that's sort of non-linear, what Nick became famous for. And that's why performance got sort of marked as a Nick Rogue film, which didn't sit well with Donald Camel. Yeah, I mean, it's understandable because if if I watch performance and Manifel to Earth and walk about, you know, back to back, I don't feel that there's a different creative voice there. It feels like all the same creative voice, even as diverse as those films are. Oh, I should just mention Chaps, just for listeners who are not a fay with sort of South London gangsters. It was is a word that I, I didn't actually know it until I read your book that this is a, a something that the, the gangsters themselves would refer to themselves as Chaps. Yes. Yeah, made men um, as they are in, in America. Yeah, but chaps in in, in London circles. Wise guys, and we in fact have just done an interview yes. with Glenn Kenny for for Made Men. His his making oh, that's of right. yes, yes, Goodfellas. In a, in a sense, this sort of convergence with the life of crime and and you know the 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 muse, the inspiration for the story, and the people telling the story itself. It, it sort of seems to be all one with this kind of slightly punkish aesthetic of let's film this on location, let's let's do this without the studio really knowing too much about it, and let's just 
get it on. There's a sort of like, you know, going back to what we said earlier, it's a, a DIY aesthetic, isn't yes, it? Yes, yeah, yeah. And then bizarrely, they, they didn't release the film for two years. And I interviewed the studio head and Ken Hyman, and he, he said, no, I wasn't averse to taking risks. It helped the lead to get off the ground. He said, but this just wasn't what, where I wanted to take the studio at that time. So they sat on it for two years. And when I asked Mick that question, he said, well, what did they make? What did they, make? What, did they not look at the script? And they, they literally didn't. All they saw was Mick Jagger, Rolling Stones album, Boom. And they saw that avenue. And at the time, London was sort of the epicenter of these these 60s-style films. And you know, they thought they were getting a hard day's night with a Rolling Stones soundtrack. And <laughs> could you could think of anything further from a hard day's night than performance? It's the same, but they thought Blade Runner was going to be Star Wars, didn't they? They thought, oh, we got, we got Han Solo being a detective. What could possibly go wrong? The idea that they don't read the script, I think, is fairly, is fairly widely acknowledged. <laughs> <laughs> You would think they would, but also I, I I feel that watching performance and rogues films generally, the the idea that um, there was this sort of time of British filmmaking, British filmmakers like Rogue and Ken Russell that were really pushing the boundaries of what you could do. Mm. I mean, from another point of view, I kind of I'm not surprised they didn't release it. In you know what I mean? It's not it doesn't it does it's not a, an easy film to sell. No, no, no. And in the event that the Rolling Stones album never materialised, I had one song with Mick, hmm. so that never materialised. And it, it's it's not a gangster film. It's not a rock opera style film, is it? It's it's you know, where, where do we send to it? You know, Borges and amalgamated identities. It's just it's just a cluster, isn't it? It could only ever been dreamt up and written in the sixties stroke 70s it's, but it's got that 60s vibe to it and it could only ever have been dreamt up then it was just um bizarre it was yeah absolutely I, and 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 to be honest i you know i watched a lot of those films from the 60s which were supposed to be capturing the zeitgeist and uh i mean most of them are, are, are kind of unwatchable now if you watch something like yes. candy or or you mm. know they're just those peter seller comedies peter sellers comedies that were magic christian and stuff like that they're just unwatchable they're just boring really dull yes. we went on a little bit of a promo tour with the book and had quite a few screenings and talks and q a's and um god does it still work now and different audiences some of my friends hadn't seen it and they came along and so they're they were they were watching it for the first time, and you, it was wonderful afterwards to to look at their faces and walk away. I know, I know, I know. You don't have to tell me. They were like, "What the <laughs> bloody hell did you see?" And, it, and it's, it's wonderful to see that push. I don't think there's sort of filmmakers like Nick anymore. I mean, one of the reasons that I've ended up working on the Train Spotting book was because uh, Irving Welsh was producing, had written a play um, with Dean Kavner on two East End gangsters auditioning for the film performance. And it was right. being shown at the Edinburgh Festival. So I quickly messaged a chum of mine, um, Ken, who produced Phil. I said, you couldn't introduce me to Irvin Welsh, but I'm just about to release performance. And he's doing this play. He said, yeah, sure, man. I'll, I'll set it up. Anyhow, Irvin and I spoke. And he said, let's shoot up to Edinburgh to see the play. So I flew up there to see the play. We got on really well. And we'd carried on emailing and messaging each other during the, the interim period. And I said, come on, 25th anniversary of train spotting. Could you introduce me to Danny in the big, large format book? And Danny's response was, the guy's done a book about performance. What's not to like? Set up me. And we went along to see Danny. And yeah, it was, it was hard initially to get him to talk about train spotting because all he wanted to talk about was Nick. Absolutely loves Nick Rogue. I mean, and you can see that in, in his films. 
Oh yeah, I think I think there's a I think there's definitely sort of like a legacy that has gone from performance into British cinema and beyond. I mean, I think uh, Jonathan Glazer uh, Under mm. the Skin and Sexy Beast, yes, yeah, are, are really roguish. If 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 I could mm. say, uh, I mean, Sexy Beast with performance and and um, Under the Skin with the Man Who Fell to Earth. I think they're really, you know, I mean, the the, the influence is really evident. Also, the point of sort of Mick Jagger being this this being his first film role as well and this was mm. really the beginning of sort of pop stars going into movies I mean you'd had Elvis and you'd had Frank Sinatra but but this new generation doing sort of serious movies not not being like Elvis mm. in in a different in a, in a cowboy hat Elvis sure. in a racing as a racing driver but actually playing playing something of a of a sort of more serious examination of what of what being a rock star was because Turner is a is is a weird is a weird distillation of Jagger and and other stuff isn't he yeah yeah you had a bit of Keith Richards in there you had a bit of Jones mm. in there no how does he sort of view it now because you talked talked to him for the book so yes how... it did and he he mentioned those two but he also mentioned that he put a bit of Donald Campbell in there and he said ultimately you're playing a little bit of a heightened version of yourself mm. by the time the film was released the Rolling Stones had sort of moved away from being one of the great beat combos to one of the, if not the biggest rock group in the world. And he'd taken on that sort of persona of Turner. If you look at the pictures of when he started Bournemouth, he was still the sort of the 60s beat pop, if that's a term, pop star. And he turned himself into the biggest rock star in the world has ever seen. Weird bits of Turner into him. His hair had got darker, it got longer. So you could definitely see a little bit of the Turner influence in the Rolling Stone going forward. I mean, Keith apparently came down to the set, wouldn't come on and wrote you know, some of the great Stones songs because of his fear of Anita Pallenberg that he'd taken mm. from Brian Jones, was now in bed with his writing partner, Mick Jagger. And I asked Mick how method were the love scenes and he was like, oh, I'll let you do your research. And, and that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. My Paul McJagger impersonation, but that was about as far as he did dive into it. I interviewed a couple of the guys, the techs, the, the camera operator, and I asked them how method it was, and they said it was, that was full on. It was, it was what it was. It was right. real. Him, they were, him and Nick were taking it in turns to take the camera underneath underneath the bedclothes to film to film Mick and Anita. And they said it was just as it was. There was two camps. There was a, a Peter Young, the two times Oscar winning um, set decorator. He said that if you the cool camp was down in the basement, and then the techs, the camera people, were sort of up there. But the cool camp was where you wanted to be. Right. And some of the guys, you know, some of the chaps would come down and uh, 
and Mick had offered them a, a toot and they, they wouldn't have anything to do with that. No drugs. You didn't do drugs in them days in, 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 in the chat world. But Mick was down there, you know, and that was where Anita's sort of drug problem sort of started really during that right. period. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and they sort of went ran wild from from then on. So let, let's move on to the the deer hunter because this is a book and a film that you know had had some controversy as well in its day. Not the book, but the film had some controversy mm. as well in its day. Um, how did you how did you decide? How did you think? Oh, okay, I'm going to do the deer hunter next. Yeah, well, that was the sort of first idea, really. I um, mean, it all came about as I said from the, the producers, and their stories were so 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 full of rancor. So that was a, sort of the biggest story. And we had some great archives given to me. And then Bob's encouragement behind the project and brought on Mel Streep and Chris Walken. I'd already got to John Savage and Rutana Alder. And, and there was, once again, there was just two camps, John. There was a, the text and the studio and the producers absolutely hated, and that's not too strong a word, absolutely hated Michael Cimino. The actors absolutely loved him. So there, there was definitely two camps there because the actors were allowed that freedom that Michael Cimino gave them they described it so not my words it's sort of napoleonic tendencies of tremino it, it was a small guy small in stature but large in volatility it doubled in 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 budget it was a seven million dollar film that escalated to 15 million michael dealey could see the money pouring out so he he'd initially put john pevel on he then pulled john pevel and sent um, barry spikins over to try and stop the money it was pouring out of the at their out of their little studio. There was a what an hour and a half of a wedding before they even hit Vietnam. I mean, it's just you just couldn't add. You just it doesn't make any sense. But now, and Michael Dealey still doesn't think it makes any sense, which it always baffled me. The guy won a Best Picture Oscar. Mm. You'd think that afterwards, you see, yeah, okay, yeah, I hated Tremaine. I still don't like him, but boy, did he deliver the goods on the film. So the, there was that was that controversy from that side, and then there was the controversy that. Tremino had lied and said that he was in, he was a Vietnam vet when he wasn't. There was the whole Tet Offensive and he flicked that in the film that made the Vietnam look like the, the barbaric people. So there was that. Jane Fonda came out, famously came out against it. She also had her own Vietnam film at the time, Coming Home. Famously, she came out against it and never hadn't seen it. And to this day, I don't think she's ever seen it. Right. Um, so she, because of the, the right wing tendencies of the film, so there's all that flavour, all that all that was going on whilst I was writing the film and discovering more about it. Naively again, it didn't detract from the film to me. I just still think it's a wonderful film. I think, yeah. I think Bob's performance in it is stunning and Chris Walken is just stunning. In a sense, Chimino's career was that sort of Heaven's Gate, Deer Hunter, both huge films, both expensive, both going way over budget, but one just happens to hit that zeitgeist at the right mm -hmm. moment and the other one's yeah. a big western that nobody wants to... He delivered a film on time, on budget. The star was happy in Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Clint Eastwood was more than happy. So he had that going into the Deer Hunter. So there was nothing to really cause any suspicions that it was anything other than he purported to be. He claimed he'd written the script. But what In my writing and investigation, I found out that he'd actually co-written it. But then further into the investigation, Joanne Corelli, um, who was Michael's sort of gatekeeper for want of a horrible description. She opened up his archives and she showed me that he did in fact write the synopsis before he'd even met his co-writer. So there's loads of things that I unearthed from that, but there was no getting away from the fact that he, Michael Dealey took exception to the fact that Tremino, in his way, wheedled his way into getting a, a producer's credit alongside a writing credit and alongside a director's credit. So that rankled. 
But he, before the deer hunter had even won the Oscars, Joe and Corelli had taken Heaven's Gate to United Artists and they could see that this film deer hunter was going to, it just blew them away. So they, they knew this guy was going to be hot. So they offered him a yes to Heaven's Gate. He, he offered it to Barry Spikins and Barry Spikins turned it down. And then the film then wins all those Oscars and him two Oscars. So he was literally the hottest kid on the block. And yeah, brilliant. Let's just give him Heaven's Gate. Fast forward to Adrian Ball, my, my next book, the reason that that was made and helped get made was because the studio was so concentrated on Heaven's Gate that Adrian Ball managed to slip under the radar. No right. one even come to the set. It was never previewed because of Heaven's Gate. So for me, there's this sort of yin and yang thing going on Heaven's Gate. It keeps popping up in the stories. He was, you know, when I asked Bob the question, he, he said that he could have handled his success better. And that's something right. we see in Hollywood, that the, the sort of quick bloom success is a really hard thing to do and keep a lid on. You look at some of the great actors that, and people that perhaps you and I admired over the years. It, lots of them, you mentioned Harrison Ford and Blade Runner. His career took age to go kick off, didn't it? It really did. It wasn't, he yeah. was fixing a house up and George Lucas famously gave him the, you know, the carpenter, the role in Star Wars. Yeah, and I think sometimes it, when you get it too quick, and that's perhaps what happened to Jamino. I mean, I haven't seen it, but Steven Soderbergh did a, a, a recut of Heaven's Gate, and apparently that's meant to be really good. And I think that will be really evaluated now, Heaven's Gate, and um, seen as um, not being the debacle that it was. I mean, people like I got Jeff Bridges to. Um, uh, it was. It was the, the book was being skewed a little bit, John, initially to be in mm. a sort of anti-Michael Cimino diatribe, and I'd, I'd read about that too often. There's all so much rubbish spoken about Michael Cimino. I didn't want my book, let somebody else go and write another book. I didn't want my book to be this sort of anti-Cimino thing going on. I wanted it to be about the deer hunter. In the event, I took some of that away from some of the tech guys that told me. But before I'd taken it away, I got in touch with Jeff Bridges to come on board because I knew that Jeff loved Michael to see if he'd talk to me. And it ended up being the afterwards to the book. And it's... Um, yeah. Oh, man, I absolutely loved doing that. It was the fondness that he had mirrored Bob, John Savage, Chris Walken, m mirrored their their memories of working with Michael Torino. They absolutely loved him. It's so funny that, in a way, that you could have had the, the double director for something like Heaven's Gate or Deer Hunter, that he would be great with the actors and let somebody else go and deal with the crew and the, and the, the yes, more technical yes. side, you know? Yeah, that would have been great, wouldn't it? Yes, yeah. If he'd had a Nick Rogue beside him. Moving on to, to Raging Bull, um, I mean, one of the the, the things that, that I'm conscious of with Raging Bull is that you've got Scorsese sort of coming off quite a bad... He's, he's coming off New York, New York, and, and a fairly low point in his career. Also, I think health-wise, he wasn't particularly mm. well. No. And Raging Bull, as, as you describe in the book, was, uh, was really De Niro's pet project, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I think that's why there wasn't a moment of hesitancy from Bob when I said I was going for it. And he said, yes, because it was something that he really, really felt passionate about. And I think at the top of this, you know, we, we spent, I think it was six seconds shy of two and a half hours going over the manuscript, just on one Zoom call alone, just working out, not censoring me, because he said that, oh, okay. Right. Is that how Marty remembered that? And Joe said that, oh, okay, okay. And then Bob would give me a little bit more because of how they remembered. And it was, it really was his passion project. He wouldn't let it go. I mean, he went away to make Deer Hunter and the first person he called on was Marty to say, Mark, I'm going to go away to make Deer Hunter. This is not going to rock the boat for our plans for Raging Bull, is it? But Marty, when I said that to Marty, he said, oh, I still wasn't interested. I had my own problems to deal with, which were coke, partying. He hated sports of any kind. 
um, when he said that when they went to St. Martin in the Caribbean, you know, he was just, what? He never set foot on the beach. Bob would be out there every morning running. He took a chin-up bar with him. He was getting, turning himself into a middleweight champion. And Marty said, the only island I'd ever been to is Manhattan. I didn't want to go to any Caribbean, any beach. Mm-hmm. I hated it. Absolutely hated it. And that's where those wonderful pictures from Gloria Norris come from. They pushed him on the beach so he could go back and they wanted to show Erwin Winkler that this is what we've been doing. We've been partying, which was nothing of the sort. They ended up rewriting Schroeder's script. It's such a bizarre movie in in the as as you were saying the studio's not taking paying much attention to it they're expect they're looking at something like Rocky as the as the sort of template and you get this black and white sort of examination of of male angst and insecurity instead of a boxing movie and a brilliant boxing movie at the same time it's very much like the Godfather isn't it the real um, Marlon Brando you think Godfather you think of Marlon Brando I, I think he was only on screen for a small portion of the film, wasn't it? I don't, I don't have the exact minutes beside me, but I know it wasn't long. It'll, it'll be it'll be 10, 15 minutes yeah, at least. Yeah, guess. and then that's yeah. the same with the boxing in Raging Bulls, 10 minutes of boxing. He, he told me that he told Norman... Sorry, he, Marty told me that he told Norman Mailer that he, was, he wasn't going to have any boxing in the film. He said, that was the state of my mind. That's where I was at the time. Making a film about Jake Yamato and I'm not going to show any boxing. just didn't interest me. Now it's incomprehensible, isn't it, John, that it's... Those boxing scenes are the greatest scenes of any sport, I think, in any film. It just took you inside the ring. He referenced James Wong and um, the famous cinematographer that he he was on roller skates doing his and, and what they done, they lengthened the ring and you really do feel like you're inside the inside their boxing with Bob. And but and another thing that Bob done, he told me, was that he um, had the, his boxing bag in the ring. So he'd literally be working out on that, working up a sweat. As soon as Marty shouted action, he'd move into camera and he'd be swathed in sweat, worked up, ready to go. When I went to his archives, there's um, there's a huge canvas, a deer hunter canvas. I wanted to get a picture of it just to see if it would work in the book. And as I was coming back down the steps, I saw um, the punch bag and I looked at the archives. I said, is it? He said, yeah. I said, come on. And he let me have a little punch on it. And that was the punch bag, that Jake Modder's Bob's punch bag. Wow. Wow. That's also the beginning of that sort of method acting immersion in a role and physically changing your body, which nowadays has has almost become, you know, something not necessarily common. Not everybody does it, but we've seen Christian Bale do it. We've seen Daniel Day-Lewis do it. We've seen Joaquin Phoenix do it and Joker. But but I can't, maybe, maybe you can correct me, but I can't remember many people doing it before the the De Niro one, especially the gaining weight. You know, lo- loads of actors, of course, get into shape for a picture, but the gaining weight was really extraordinary at the time, and even today, it's like unrecognisable. Yeah, he is. Yeah, and that's what I wanted to put into the book. That picture, there's a picture of um, Bob as Travis Bickle. So now you, you see him, this sinewy frame. So I wanted to show show the reader. This. So, so you've got Travis Bickle, and then you've got Jake the Motto, this beautiful frame that. Now, most guys would absolutely die for a frame like Bob's and to look as, as as fit as that. And then to put your body through what Bob did, to, to go to France for four months. It, initially, I'd read that he'd gone to Italy and France, and that wasn't the case. Bob told me, no, 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 I wish I had gone to Italy because I could have eaten more. Mm. Whereas in France, the food was so rich, I could only eat one big meal a day because it was just so rich. Whereas if I'd gone to Italy, I could have ate more. Yeah. And he said, but I had to feel what it was like they were out of breath, the, the the my thighs chafing, the sweat. I had to feel what that was like, and 
There's another great bit in the book that Marty told me that he, Owen Winkler, said that it was the only argument he's ever had with Bob in all their years of friendship at the weight game. And The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp was it's a, one of the great films, isn't it? And um, and Marty said, look, I'm friendly with Michael Powell. Why don't we ask Michael about, you know, how they did, did it in there? You know, the fat suit. No, no, I'm not wearing a fat suit. Just have a look. Just have a chat with Michael. So they had a dinner party. Isabella was there. I think Harvey Cartel was there. A few people were there. And early on in the, in the meal, Michael Powell says to Marty, well, when, when's Walt De Niro turning up? He's there. He's sitting next to you. He sat next to you for the, the early part of the <laughs> evening. And he hadn't, he said, and that is the great, that's why Bob is such a great actor. You don't even know he's in the room. And then he transformed. Right. Right, absolutely. There was even talk of filming the film during the day and then making it as a play in the evening, but Bob said that that would have gone down the fat suit. And I just did not want to wear a fat suit. Right, right, right. I, I, I guess it's not for everyone. You shouldn't have to feel like doing that as a commitment, but it does stand out as one of those performances and it's so, it's so, you know, physically, so in, it's so interesting. Yeah, I think so. I think with Gary Oldman we wore the, the fat suit for um, the Churchill portrayal. And I think that's a bit different. Yeah, it's a bit because he he was playing a character who we all know looks like that. I think what Bob wanted to show was the character in free fall. And the only way he could do that is to show just how out of shape he was. The first time he'd ever saw um, Jake Lamotta in the flesh was prior to sort of Rage and Ball coming onto his uh, into his vision as a film. He'd seen him working as a bouncer outside of a club and he thought, oh, it's Jake Lamotta. He said instantly, I thought, God, look how out of shape he was. That's interesting, which is just how Bob's mind works. It's, it's amazing when you, you sit there chatting away to him and he's so humble. He never looks on it like that. And uh, you can see me shaking my head when we've spoken. To me, it's just remarkable that his, his attention to detail is, is I just think he's, he's just my hero, John. Just his sure, cinematic sure. hero. I, I read an interview with Daniel Day Lewis about this sort of you know, why do you go to this extent and everything? And he was saying, because I'm really curious. So if somebody says, you're going to play a, a tailor, I'm going to like, oh, brilliant. I'll find, I've, I've always wanted to know how to make clothes. And he'll, and it's, it's sort of, uh, I mean, he was downplaying it, but I think that's that level of curiosity in that, at that moment in De Niro's career goes all the way through his performances. You know, he's just constantly researching the character and doing as much as he can to give a convincing as convincing a performance as possible. You, you've got train spotting coming up. When's that? Yes, that's almost finished. Right. We're hoping that's, that we'll be out in the summer. I meet up with Andrew McDonald week after next just to go over different parts of the archive. I just did a couple of interviews today with the, some of the Empire team at the time so because they really championed the film. I've got a, um, just to follow up with both Ewans and Robert Carlyle just on a couple of things. But yeah, we're virtually, I'm virtually there. And then evenings are spent back into the world of Robert De Niro with Taxi Driver. Right, and when is that due? Well, I'm hoping that we might be able to, with a fair wind on time-wise, we might be able to get it out for the end of the year. Taxi Driver is such an amazing film. Yes, it is. Yeah, it is. It just, and it still works. I mean, he's still astonished. I mean, he was working on 1900 at the time and um, and went down to the, the American Air Base, started talking to people from, from the district of Travis Bickle and came back and started driving a cab. And um, I was talking to Marty about it, actually, on one of our Raging Ball chats. And he, he said it was true that a guy did get in Bob's cab and he'd already won the Oscar for The Godfather and said to him, hey, hell, Bob, you know, things are that bad. Have you? No, 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 I'm doing this research. <laughs> And no, 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 Bob, you, you don't have to be embarrassed to me. And gave him a tip, <laughs> a healthy tip. It was Jake LaMotta. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. But, they, um, but they, 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 they are no money for these films, John. Absolutely not a penny. I've interviewed Michael Phillips, the producer, mm. 
uh, of taxi driver and he's and interviewed a guy last night um phil goldfarb who's the sort of the executive producer on behalf of columbia and these guys were doing it for next to nothing they literally bob could have uh, a small fortune after the godfather yeah. he was so committed to to the stories that he he and marty wanted to make and that to me is just really intriguing to dive into those worlds these guys are these guys are artists and um it's, to me, it's just to, now I'm in there. I really want to make sure that we um, we look at these films and we, we, we honour them. And then Tra- uh, Travis Bickle and the performance of Travis Bickle and the performance of Robert De Niro's Travis Bickle, should I say, is one that I, I can't wait to dive into. It's, um, I've already got a plethora of material and been messaging Bob different things. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's going to be another great time. Are you going to get contact with, uh, with all the other cast members and everything you've got uh, access to? I've written away to them all. Yes, I've had a couple come back and say yes already. Um, and then we'll see. Yeah, if we're, hopefully with Bob's encouragement, they come on board. I think we, once he shows them what we've done with Raging Ball and with Deer Hunter, you can see that, the you know, I'm not after the salacious gossip. I'm not after anything other than the film. The making of films in that era especially seems to be something of an adventure in itself anyway. There seems to be, it seems to be less corporate and much more there's much more spontaneity and, and it's kind of more yes. risk do you, do you think that's true no i do and it's bizarre because um, we talked about performance made away from studio pressure the pressure came afterwards um, raging ball made away from studio pressure the pressure came afterwards deer hunter made in thailand away from studio pressure the pressure came afterwards taxi driver made in new york away from studio pressure but that pressure was coming i learned some really really interesting details from the two producers that I've interviewed already and uh, they both lied basically they, they knew the film was never going to get made for the budget they were giving it to so they had to lie but, but you did but it was uh, I think it was originally 700,000 went up to 900,000 dollars then 1.3 and it come in at 1.7 1.7 million the taxi driver they just forget it it's just one of the all-time classic films and they made it for that that money it's just phenomenal but then Michael Phillips absolutely thoroughly enjoyed chatting to him and getting to know him over the last few weeks. It, what a story! He he was working in the money market. Married Julia Phillips. Julia Phillips had just started sort of working in the film industry in New York. She'd got friendly with a, an actor called Tony Bill. Tony Bill used to visit them in New York when he visited New York, and he said, "Look, there's a huge opportunity in in, in Hollywood because all the guys are coming out of film school." And they, they can't get an interview with a director or studio. Why don't we hang our shingle out and see what we, if we can attract them? So they pulled their money, which come to the grand total of $3,500, pulled their money. Tony went back to Hollywood and hung their shingle out. First person through the door was this young guy who started pitching him a story. He said, no, 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 hang on. I want to tape it. Taped it. He said, because I want to send it to my partners in New York. So the young writer now thinks, wow, these guys are huge players. They've got offices in New York. So he starts pitching this story. Really, They really love it. And they say to him, well, can you actually write? And he said, yeah, I, I can. You can have a look at my theses, my school theses. So they looked at that. They loved it. And they optioned that. So they optioned two things. The school theses, they got off the ground. And within two weeks, Donald Sutherland and Jane Fonda were starring in it called Steel Yard Blues. It happened to bomb. But in the interim time, Julia Phillips and Michael Phillips started renting this house on the beach next to Brian De Palma. Brian De Palma's playing chess with this young writer, Paul Schrader, gave him the script to Taxi Driver. Brian said, well, I don't know for me, but I tell him, like, Michael Phillips might be up for this. Walked down the beach, gave it to Michael Phillips. Michael Phillips said it just hit him like a thunderbolt. He said, had to have it so he optioned that in that interim time this young writer david ward 
the film that he pitched was The Sting. They then won and won the Oscar for The Sting Best Picture. This is from a guy that had never stepped foot on the film set till three, you know, a couple of years previous. It won the Best Picture Oscar. Their fourth film was a film that the young filmmaker couldn't get off the ground. Close Encounters of the Third Kind. <laughs> I mean, if that doesn't show you you can have a go at things in life, then nothing. Build it and they will come. I mean, unbelievable, isn't it? What a story. I mean, I, Michael could see how energised I was after our chat. You know, you and I love films for all of our life. But it's just, they're, they're the stories I absolutely oh, I love. Absolutely. Absolutely yeah, love. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. And I think your books really capture that. They really capture uh, the just the, the energy that goes behind making the films. And I love the arguments. Thank and I you, love John. The, that means a lot. Yeah, no, it's, 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 I mean, I know Deer Hunter and Raging Bull and performance really well. And I was learning loads of new stuff in there. And that's, oh, that's thank awesome. you, John. That's really very kind. No, no, it's amazing. It's amazing. I wanted to ask you, though, about your inspiration as well as a, a, a recommendation of a film book that, that has inspired you in the past. Oh, right. Um, oh, my word. These are the questions you hate. I'm looking at a pile of books sitting in front of me, and all of them I take to a desert island. The Big Goodbye, Chinatown, Sam Wesson's recent one. Five came back, another recent one, Mark Harris, beautiful. A. Scott Bird, Goldwyn, it's just one of the great biographies, as is Kevin Brownlow's David Lean's, the absolute stunning biography. Frank Capper's the name above the title, Montgomery Cliff, Patricia Bosworth. Two, I'm going to have two, but one I'm going to have to make a decision on. Two would be Conversations with Wilder, with Cameron Crowe, because I absolutely love Billy Wilder, and Cameron Crowe's book I thought was just stunning. And it's not something I normally, the question-answer thing I wanted to get away with, away from in my books but I absolutely love Cameron's book and I, one day I will meet him and write him an email and, or write him an email and just say how much I love his book but perhaps the book that had the biggest that I absolutely love and I've read so many times I've been to see the stage play I used to do a lot of running when I was younger and listen to it on my headphones is this one The Kid Stays in the Picture Robert Evans absolutely love it I love his voice I love his story I love the fact that he had that punk attitude I love the fact that before he'd even produced a film he was the head of a film studio. I just love everything about Robert Evans. Everything that was wrong or right, I, you know, I just, I just think the kid stays in the picture. To me, when they, you know, who needs facts when you've got myths and made-up stories like that? Absolutely a treasure trove. I'm sure most of the stories aren't true, but boy, do they make a great book and a great read. Okay, so that was my conversation with Jake Lenny, the author of the Making of Raging Bull book, as well as the Making of of Performance, The Man Who Fell to Earth, The Deer Hunter, and soon to be released Train Spotting, as well as at the end of the year, hopefully, his Taxi Driver book. So uh, all those to look forward to. As you can tell, these are beautiful books. If you go to his site, Code coattail publications you'll be able to see for yourself and uh, Jay has access to uh, the most important people influencing the making of those films filmmakers and stars alike so uh, thanks very much for listening uh, if you like the episode please remember to like subscribe and spread the word generally you can follow me on twitter at Dr. Jonty D-R-J-O-N-T-Y Thanks also to Ellie Atkins for the music and Ali Howard for the cover art. Until next week, please take care.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.